we continue our reading from the Sermon on the Mount. As I've said now many times, better called the Great Instruction. This section is one of the key sections coming up. There's several, there are actually several very important sections coming up, but I will take them a little bit at a time. Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote, which is to say splinter, or speck, that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam, and that has the same meaning as today, a beam used to span a house, for example, um, in those days was usually half a log. But considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye. Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull out the splinter out of thine eye, and behold, a log is in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, first cast out the log out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the splinter out of thy brother's eye. Very short section, but it harks back to a number of motifs that are present throughout this sermon and which give it its unity, uh, namely the ones that center around the idea of forgiveness. They are, it is also connected, as we will see, with the sense, the idea of cosmic helplessness, which is the first thing that we have to grasp in order to be able to be open to the grace of God and to grow, as we saw at the very beginning of this sermon. Um, I want to read a parable from another section of the Gospel of Matthew, which um, I referred to a few weeks back but did not read. It's very important and it connects with this one very clearly. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him ten thousand talents, which is at least fifty-two million eight hundred thousand dollars. That's a lot of money. But forasmuch as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants which owed him a hundred pence, that is to say about forty-four dollars. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me and I will pay thee all. And he would not but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry, and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, 
I forgave thee all that debt because thou desiredst me. Shouldst not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors, till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. Now this teaching is well-known part of the teaching of the masters. It does not really need an awful lot of comment, I don't think. In my experience, both from my experience with myself and my experience with other people also, it is one of the hardest things to follow because there is that, that particular tendency which is exaggerated so much as to be a caricature in the parable but is very firmly based on reality which is why it is a parable to um, insist on getting what is due us without considering what it is that we owe speaking now universally and cosmically is really very deep-rooted and the desire to, to fix blame on someone else for whatever happens. Also, both of these things run against and make impossible the cultivation of that, of that sense of cosmic helplessness that I referred to before, which is sort of the underlying root of the whole instruction. If we really, if, if the poor in spirit are blessed, it is not possible to be poor in spirit to be open to whatever God sends if we are judging others in this way because we do not see the will of God working through them if we do that, we cannot we insist on seeing it in the terms of of that they are responsible people now this ties in directly with you see the whole teaching on what you might call in a Christian context predestination or but in Satnatis might be called the God is the doer idea. Okay, if God is the only doer, you see, then how can anyone be blamed? And this is the point of view that we have to take. Now, it is true that there is a sense, as long as we do not understand, this was read last week and it's really a very clear thing, as long as we do not understand that God is the doer, then we are held responsible in the sight of the negative power for what we do and we do contract karma because of that um, that's true and that is the debt that we owe that's the fifty two million eight hundred thousand dollars that that we owe now in passing let me just say sometimes people think that um, well the master explains to us the master has told us that if we understand that this is all um, God's will and, and uh, we're not to blame therefore uh, we won't contract any karma it doesn't work like that uh, there's nothing in the teachings that indicate that that's the case when we reach the point where we can see for ourselves and really see that the will of God is working through everything no matter what happens to us when we reach that point which is to say at least the level of the third or fourth plane I would say at that point we are not responsible for what we do we become karmaless at that point but we have to reach the level where we see it for ourselves to be told it and then to think about it in an intellectual way is just fooling ourselves 
um, because in our heart of hearts we continue to uh, consider that we are doing and that other people are doing. But the more we we work at this, in other words, the more we realize, as Master Kripal wrote to me, which I've often quoted in satsang, please know it for certain that everything that comes to your account is in your best spiritual interests. As long as we have that perspective with what other people are doing and recognize that the name of the game is growth, okay, our growth is what counts. That's what we're on the path for, not to be proven right in a series of, of contests with others, that we are the ones that, that win, that we are the ones who get the high score, uh, etc., but that our aim is to grow. If we can bear that in mind, then we will, I think, develop a detachment which will go a long way toward uh, helping us get that which we want. Now, the, the, the other side of it is, as long as we are in this mess, you see, if we blame other people for what they do, then we are also helpless. Okay, at any given point, in other words, this is where poor in spirit, poverty in spirit, really, um, really is what, this is where it really applies. Okay, if we think that we are in a position to find fault with anybody else for anything, when we are in the position that we are in, well, this is the essence of delusion. And that's the whole point behind this teaching. Um, spiritually speaking, it is not compatible with growth. If we are thinking like that, we are trading um, what we could have, that is to say, genuine, real growth on our own part for a, for a way of looking at life that we find temporarily, superficially satisfying. Um, and if you see people who really get into this will, of course, really spend a lot of energy and time assigning blame to other people on a, on a very categorical kind of basis. This person is this, this person is that. And they will really get into that. It's a thing that, that will spend most of their waking hours. That's an extreme, but uh, it's deep-rooted in all of us. None of us are free from it. And uh, this has been in my own life, one of the hardest things to deal with because even when I'm intellectually aware of the problem, I do find that inclination to want to blame or to find fault or to exonerate myself is really very strong. And sometimes Master has taught me some extremely hard lessons in this way that I've found, I've sat down to meditation after a day of internally judging someone and there I'm, I'm doing it still and I can't stop. And the meditation consists of me sitting in judgment on that person. And, uh, you know, I just can't extricate myself from it. And it's, a, it's a real strong lesson. At other times, if I have found that if I judge someone, um, then I fail myself very fast. It's something like <coughs> the rope is so short. Maybe others have also had this experience. Like right around my knees. And if I... If I uh, uh, think, you know, blame someone for this, bam, it's like I've hit the floor instantly and I'm failing in something, maybe not the same thing that I'm judging for, but something else, just to show me that, uh, you know, who am I to have thoughts like that. It's a really important thing, and the Masters have put a lot of stress on it. The Sermon on the Mount, you could say that 
that the, the Sermon on the Mount is more about this than anything else in terms of what we have to do. All of the teachings of uh, turning the other cheek, of forgiving the essence of the Lord's Prayer, now this in not judging, are this is one aspect of the of the trusting in God. Because trusting in Him means that we trust in whatever He has sent us also. Uh, it isn't just living in the living present in the sense of, of taking, not worrying about tomorrow that we talk, talked about last week, although that's another part of it. They're all connected. But it's also in accepting whatever is happening to us at the moment, no matter how uh, unpleasant it might be, as that it is what we need in order to grow. Because remember that our goal for none of us is our goal a, a finite thing in, within the context of this life. There may be finite goals that we have that are not at all wrong or incompatible with the ultimate goal. But every one of us here has either made a, a commitment or is considering making a commitment to the idea of ultimate spiritual liberation. And that means growth on a scale undreamed of if we don't have that goal. And therefore, uh, the perspective has to be different. Master Kripal Singh put it this way. This is a notes taken on a satsang that he gave in January 1967, which I've printed a couple of times over the years, and I've read it satsang too. It's very powerful, very much to the point. If we realize that death is certain, then there will be a change in our life. You must remain attentive in meditation. If not, the mind will think of others and judge their actions, criticizing, etc. Instead of the good actions of others, we take their bad actions to be our guiding factor. If you see the bad qualities of others, you will become those bad qualities. As you think, so you become. God has said, He is my loveliest child who sees me in others. Thoughts are very potent. You should see the good qualities of others rather than the bad qualities. You must have a sweet tongue. It should not injure the feelings of others. You want to love God, yet you curse others in whom God resides. Injuring the feelings of others is a great sin. It is a sin of the highest degree. If you have to face a person with such bad qualities, get on to one side rather than face him. Analyze yourself and see your own shortcomings instead of seeing the shortcomings of others. Who are you to take out the shortcomings of others? It is easy to seek God, but very difficult to mend yourself. If you realize that God resides in others, would you want to hurt them? One by one you should give up your shortcomings. This is why I insist on all initiates keeping a diary. If a man won't give up his evil ways of hurting others, why should you depart from your sweet ways of helping others? If you must observe others, then observe their virtuous qualities. There are shortcomings in all, but also good qualities. Swamiji says, I will give you a tip. If you want to see shortcomings, then look into your own self. If you want to see virtues, then see them in others. Listen to what I say and take heed. If not, you will be sorry, and then it will be too late in the day. I have selected the best piece of advice for you. Now it is up to you to follow it. God has given us this tongue to remember him and not to hurt the feelings of others.
it's a, a recognition I think psychologically it's a recognition that we are all in the same boat and that the old saying um, there but for the grace of God go I is absolutely true it's a hard saying for a lot of people I've found and many people have philosophical um, convictions which make them feel that this, that this kind of thinking uh, which they don't realize is, is part of Christ's teaching um, although it's very clearly there but they don't see it that way and they think that it leads to irresponsibility on the part of people and uh, it's important to them to have this sense of we are responsible for what happens to us and uh, it is our fault there is a sense there's a lot of paradoxes on the path and I won't deny it and there is a sense definitely in which a uh, level on which that is also true and uh, to, to take the attitude in a negative way that, that, that you know we are not responsible for what we have done wrong and that therefore God is unfair to us by sending us the suffering that he sends us is exactly the opposite attitude of what is required but to take that and apply it to other people in other words to to um, assume that that they are responsible for what they have done therefore they need not have compassion or therefore uh, our responsibility ends there or therefore they can be blamed for what they do and we can do anything we want against them this is the kind of thing that has to be avoided there is a difference master quoted the statement of swamiji that if we want to praise someone praise the master if we want to criticize someone criticize ourselves and he used to say in connection with the diary um, criticize yourself as you would criticize others there's that transfer of the critical attitude from other people to ourselves has a certain value in that it does help us to to get into that place that that um, Christ is aiming for us to get into in the Sermon on the Mount and the Masters are aiming for us to get into in general and again the sense of of, uh, of worthlessness on our part even that the Hasidic rabbis used to say that every man should have two pockets one was one on one of which is written for my sake the world was created but for the other I am dust and ashes and he said and they used to say you should pull them out depending on the need there's there are times when we have to realize that we count and count a lot that God became man to love us and to take us back and that we matter we matter a whole lot and God cares about us and loves us but what is it you see that which God came to save is something which we have had contact with only a little tiny bit in the course of our life. That which we are accustomed to call us, the ego, is precisely what we are going to be saved from. Therefore, that's the, the reason for the paradox. So that we can't differentiate, when we criticize other people, um, we can't separate in them, um, you might say their lower part from their higher part. We may say that we can, but that's just delusion. We can't, in fact, do it. When uh, we find fault with ourselves, though, and blame ourselves, as long as it's kept as in, as Master Kapal once wrote me, um, 
something, well, I've forgotten the exact words, but something like uh, to be aware of one's shortcomings is a happy augury, but um, you're going too far. That was the point of it. Uh, you're becoming morbid. We can also become so obsessed with our horribleness and our guilt and our general um, awfulness that, that we do become morbid and again we are taking ourselves too seriously in both cases when we are always exonerating ourselves and when we are always condemning ourselves um, the, the danger arises that our own ego is exalted to enormous importance and sort of blots out everything else and uh, that's part of the coin there is another parable which I have referred to many times in satsang too uh, this is from Luke 16, 1 through 12. And the previous readings, um, because many people have requested that I include the chapters and verses in the talks, the judge not section is from Matthew 7, 1 through 5. And the parable about the servant is from Matthew 18, 21 to 35. So this is from Luke 16, 1 through 12. And he said also unto his disciples, There was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called him and said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig. To beg I am ashamed. I am resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him, and said unto the first, How much owest thou unto my Lord? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said unto him, Take thy bill, and sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then said he to another, And how much owest thou? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said unto him, Take thy bill and write fourscore. And the Lord commended the unjust steward, because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. And I say unto you, Make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. And this is an extremely interesting and very controversial parable. And a lot of people have not understood it. A lot of people have complained about it because Jesus appears to be recommending dishonesty and a certain kind of self-serving cravenness, we can call it here. Um, I would like to read to you from the commentary of P.D. Uspensky on this particular uh, section of scripture because I have found this extremely helpful over the years. This is from a book called New Model of the Universe. It says, In the present instance, with regard to the parable of the unjust steward, it can be said at once that it relates to occult principles, that is, to rules of esoteric work. But this is not sufficient for the understanding of it. There is something strange in this demand for falsehood, demand for deceit. This demand only begins to be comprehensible when we consider the nature of the falsehoods that are demanded. <coughs> the steward cuts down the debts of his lord's debtors 
forgives them a part of their debts and for this his Lord afterwards praises him. Is not this forgiveness of sins? In the passage immediately following the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Usually these passages are understood as advice to people to forgive those who sin against them. But actually this is not said at all. What is said is simply forgive people their sins. And if we take the passage literally as it is written, the parable of the unjust steward begins to be more comprehensible. It is recommended in this parable to forgive people their sins, not against us, but all their sins generally, whatever they may be. The question may arise as to how we can forgive the sins of other people, sins which have no relation to ourselves. The parable of the unjust steward gives the answer to this. We can do it by means of a certain illegal practice, by means of a falsification of bills, that is, by means of a certain intentional alteration of that which we see. In other words, we can, as it were, forgive other people their sins by representing them to ourselves as better than they really are. This is a form of falsehood which not only is not condemned, but is actually approved in the gospel teaching. By means of such a falsehood, a man insures himself against certain dangers, acquires friends, as it says in the parable, and on the strength of this falsehood proves deserving of confidence. And I think that that really is very, very close to the teaching of the masters on this subject. Uh, in the basis hall talk of Master Kripal Singh, which we have played many times on tape at the satsang here and has been published in the magazine also, Master goes into a lot of detail about this sort of thing, uh, including a quote of the famous saying, see no evil, hear no evil, think no evil. Okay, if we're not supposed to see or hear evil, if that is a, a straight-out commandment, and he indicates that very clearly in that talk, then the only way to do it is to somehow look past it, to falsify the bills, in other words, and to, and to not demand in our heart not demand that the other person pay the full debt that they owe, um, whether it's to us or to somebody else. If, of course, if all mankind is one, if unity of man is a real fact, as we believe that it is, having been told that it is on good authority, then uh, who is it that anyone is going, in what sins are not committed against us, and which sins are we not in a position to forgive? From that point of view, it's unanswerable. I think this is a really important point, um, that it is based on this sense of all of us being in the same boat. Um, one thing that is important is that the Masters, there is implied, it isn't usually indicated in the same places as this teaching we have just uh, gone into. But there is a difference. Master Kripal has said many times, uh, hate the sin but love the sinner. To pretend that the sinner is not doing what he or she is doing does not mean that we condone um, the sin all the same. There is a, to falsify the bill, so to speak, does not mean that we go out and run up debts ourselves in that, in that particular commodity or that we... Um, 
advocate doing it or think it's a good thing. There is a, a very a, a line of detachment here which really consists, it goes right back to being hard on ourselves and very easy with everyone else, including our wife, our husband, our children, our closest friends, our co-workers, and so forth, the very people that we are ordinarily the hardest on. Um, we are all in the same boat, you know, and, and uh, it's obvious, as Master says in the parable, we're all on train going someplace, and people get on at different stations and get off at different stations. And if we, if everyone is happy with each other that are on the train, the ones who end up in our compartment, and easygoing and pleasant, then everything goes well. If we are fighting with each other all the time, then uh, what's the good of the train ride? What fun is it going to be? So it's, all of these are factors of it. But this is a really important uh, part of the path. And I emphasize it so much, first because the masters do, the Sukmani, uh, as you know, um, this month is the conclusion of the Ashtapati that began in last month's magazine, which is all about this subject, although it's, Sanchi takes it further, I should say Guru Arjan takes it further, and is mostly uh, connected with, with judging or criticizing or abusing the saints, which is a special kind of a development of it, which is much harder on the people who do it than the other kind. Because, after all, if, if as Sanchi has said, then when we criticize or judge someone, then our sins are, their sins are removed from them and added to us. And whatever virtues we may have are given to them, then that does become very difficult when we are criticizing the saints. And Milana Rumi points out that every time we aim an axe or a sword at a saint, uh, we are aiming it at a mirror and we're really hitting ourselves. And that's the underlying truth behind that. And, of course, in the history of the world, criticizing saints has not historically been just a matter of, of spreading rumors. It's been a matter of putting them on the cross and taking off their skin and things of that sort. But who who is being put on the cross and whose skin is being taken off in reality? See, it is, it is uh, those who are doing it. So it's for their own sake that this that this subject is is stressed so much. But if we don't start out by criticizing and judging our brothers and sisters, perhaps it won't get carried through into criticizing and judging those who are so far above us that it just bounces back. So all of those things are a part of it. And in the Sukmani also, it is tied in. The Sukmani... Um, is in some ways an elaborate elaboration, not exactly what I meant to say, but a uh, an extended version of some of the things in the great instruction that, uh, again, the emphasis on the helplessness of man, the doership of God, combined with a very heavy emphasis on, on not judging others and so forth, are definitely connected. Okay, I'll just take... Uh, there's a verse which sort of stands by itself here. This is Matthew 7, verse 6. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. 
This is an important verse, um, not of the, of the of the importance of some of the others, but it's a specific commandment aimed at people getting through this life without a lot of trouble, uh, being able to practice their meditation and walk the path without being prevented. Um, it's simply, we again, it ties in with the whole business of letting people know how holy we are. Many people are not. Uh, leaving aside the question of whether we are in fact holy. Um, many people are not up to accepting it if we are, or if we aren't either, and will react in a very negative way. And if we reveal to them more than they are able to grasp, it's something like giving a loaded gun to a five-year-old kid and thinking that you know he'll just have a nice time playing with it. So that is why at the initiation time they're very heavy instructions about what we can reveal. Sometimes the initiates forget those instructions, but they're still there. And if uh, we do reveal what we cannot, uh, then we will suffer for it, not because the Master will be angry at us, not because we will have committed an enormous sin cosmically, but we will suffer for it in just this way. It will bounce right back on us in a very immediate way. And we will wish that we hadn't. And of course, anything that we we reveal to other people, um, we become responsible for whatever happens to them. If we tell somebody how to meditate, for example, when we have not been authorized specifically to do that by the master, um, and they meditate before they are ready to, and begin to leave the body or have experiences, are frightened by those experiences, and do not then care to meditate anymore, or if they, even if they want to, are frightened by that and do not uh, are not able to because of the fear that, that accompanied that initial experience. And you may think that sounds far-fetched, but I have known more than one case exactly like this. Then definitely there is a responsibility on the part of the person who taught them how to meditate for what for that happening. And this has been confirmed to me. I have discussed this in great detail with both Master Kapal and with Master Ajayb also. And both of them have explained this point very clearly to me, especially because there was a time when I used to do this all the time, uh, give out meditation instructions very freely, not did not reveal every last detail, but uh, at satsang it was customary back in the 60s to do this. And I did not understand there was anything wrong with it. And even when I first became aware that Master did not like it, I... Uh, thought that he couldn't be talking about what he was talking about. I thought that it must be some error somewhere. And I did have eventually the opportunity to talk to him in detail, and he told me that um, that I was wrong. And, uh, and it should be, you know, the only time that I should be giving meditation instruction to anyone is at the time of initiation when he had authorized it. And I have adhered to that ever since. Revealing our inner experiences falls into the same category. These are, this is not the kind of thing that ought to be talked about or brought about into the open air. It is, it will not, it will not stand that. It's vulnerable to that. It's on a, exists on a different level than that. If we talk about it in daylight, so to speak, with other people, then it is cheapened and diminished. We are cheapened and diminished, and the people to whom we are talking will not respond positively they will respond negatively. And we are the losers. So it's an important thing.
and it has to be uh, grasped. This is not, again I will say, this is not on the same level as judging others, but it is, it is a practical thing which we will just be able to keep obstructions out of our own way if we follow it. And that is where we will stop for this week, and we will continue next week. Uh, just a sort of a postscript to the, the earlier part of the satsang. I've read this out a number of times at satsang too. This is from Milana Rumi's Masnavi, book two. And it reminds me of the behavior of, well, of me and of lots of people I know too, I think. Um, all mixed up together. Four Indians went to the mosque to say their prayers. Each one pronounced the invocation and was saying his prayers with great devotion when the muezzin happened to come in, that is, the preacher, so to speak. One of them immediately called out, O muezzin, have you yet called to prayer? It is time to do so. The second said to the speaker, Aha! You have spoken words unconnected with worship, and therefore, according to tradition, you have spoiled your prayers. Thereupon the third scolded the second one, saying, No simpleton! Why do you rebuke him? Rather rebuke yourself. Last of all, the fourth said, God be praised that I have not fallen into the same ditch as my three companions. <laughs> <So> sometimes <laughs> we all sound like that, I'm afraid. 